my radio career really started there because that's when I, I, I got to put the, the, the biggest work in. The goal is to still make great radio. Put in the time, do the work. I associated laughing with radio, and that's kind of why I always wanted to be a part of it. In this business, we forget just how great it is. This is the Off Mic Podcast, a radio show about radio life. This week on the show, it's Andrew Wilcox, Program Director of Harvard Fort McMurray. Where was the first moment that you were like, ooh, radio sounds like fun? I don't have an exact moment. But it's just, I think it's like a lot of kids who grew up in small towns in the prairies. I think radio was always just there for you. And I knew the exact moment I wasn't going to do what I was planning to do, which I was going to be a cop. Me and my best friend wanted to be a police officer for forever. And my dad was like, if you want to make no money, get no respect and have most people hate you except old people, then go be a cop. <laughs> He's like, it's a good job, but you'll never, no, uh, nobody's ever going to like you. That really sunk in with me. And I was like, no, I'd rather have a job that people are going to like me. You got turned off by the idea of making no money and having people not like you. So you went into radio. <laughs> I know. Boy, did I have a different view of it back then. But hey, it was the 90s. You know, it was a different time. Uh, yeah. So then I was like, ah, I don't know, rock star? You know, failed at guitar very quickly. And I was like, what can I do? Well, I really, I don't know why, maybe I'm odder than a lot of radio people, but I really, I had interest in what I came to know as sociology. Like I wanted to understand people and I wanted to talk to rock stars i was like that was the whole thing i was like how do i talk to rock stars and see what makes them tick because i love music i'm interested in people i'm like i like i was a, i was even a people watcher as a kid and that was what i thought i'd do as radio but then i didn't think i was as cool as the guys that were on the radio back then listening to the bear in edmonton when it had just launched in like power 92 at the time and I didn't think it was cool as those guys. So I was like, I'm going to go on radio. I'm going to do production. And eventually I want to own my own radio station. That was the thought when I was probably 15, 16 years old. <laughs> so that was the start. That's adorable. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I don't know about you, but I mean, like, I grew up in super small town, Camrose, Alberta, really close to the Dried Meat Lake. The radio was always on and it was the closest thing you had to celebrities that you could kind of talk to. There's no Edmonton celebrities, really. What, we got Michael J. Fox? So like the celebrities were your radio guys and you're like, those guys are the coolest people on earth. How do I ever get to be like them or near them? And that was the thought process. Yeah, I remember when, when I was in Hay River and we had a community radio station, CKHR, and a couple of guys that were like one grade older than me came into school one day <laughs> and they were like, yeah, we're, we're going to do our own radio show on Saturday afternoons on the local station. These were nerdy dudes. That's why we were yeah. friends. All of a sudden, everybody in the school was just like, yo, did you hear they got their own radio show? Exactly. Because <laughs> having a radio show back in the day used to be pretty darn cool. Another thing that I loved, this is going to sound, this is as nerdy as it gets. I loved auctioneers. I loved going to the cattle auctions with my dad and how auctioneers and MCs would command the room. That, to me, is, led to my love for MCing. And I had to learn how to public speak in 4-H, and that helped me a ton in getting to eventually do this which is such a weird thing. But yeah, as a little farm kid, I love the auctioneers. I thought they were the coolest things. I still think they are. I'd still love to take the course. How fast are you right now, though? Oh, I'm not even, I'm not even going to attempt to do an impression at this point. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but have you ever seen that video where those dudes, they got the rap beats of yes. the auctioneers oh. and they nail it? It's amazing. <laughs> it's such a great it's bit. Amazing. I wish I'd thought yeah, of it. I know, it's genius. I'm 75, five and a half. Here it is, 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 here it is,
starting, that was the genesis of it all for me, is just living in small town cameras. And like, we didn't have, a, the other problem too is like, we didn't have access to a lot of really cool music. Like you had, Zellers had some albums, but it didn't have much. And then we had this thing called Big K Music in the Cameras Mall. I think it was called Big K, Big Something. And they only let three kids in at a time. <laughs> and you weren't allowed to have your backpack on. And they didn't like you browsing. And they didn't let you listen to anything. So you could never sample music. So the only place you were sampling music back then for me was off of the radio station. So I would flip between Power Night 2 and the Bear, Zed out of Red Deer, uh, just to hear, uh, you know, rock and alternative and, and a little bit of what was po- called pop in those days, which is now all on my classic hit station. So I know you're a Nate kid. Was that just proximity? Did you look at any other schools? It was basically proximity. I looked at, at Fate, and I actually kind of wanted Fate because the only reason I wanted to drive for Fate was because they had an interview, and I thought I could ace the interview. I knew my marks weren't the greatest, but I thought if I came to that interview, I could I could prove to them how passionate I was about what I was doing. But I never even got a I never got a call back from them. But Nate got back to me, and I didn't get in the first time, but I got in in the in the fall uh, registration. So that was the. I also looked at um, what was it called? The one in downtown in Edmonton, Fly by Night School. The Canadian School of Modern Broadcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Canadian. I looked at that too, but I, I had somewhat of an understanding that because a lot of people told me because I, I tried to sneak my hands into it whenever I could. So in Camelot, we had Augustana, the university, but the university had its own radio station. So I snuck myself into that when I could, and I would ask a bunch of people questions, and everybody told me that the people who you were going to know in your school were the people we were going to help you out later on. So I thought it'd be really good for me to meet people because I heard a bunch of them said Nate and I was like, okay, well, it's good for me to know the people in Nate. So I want to go to Nate to meet people there, even though it's a longer course. And I also knew that the four month practicum was probably what was going to get me a job, even though in reality that didn't happen. (laughs) You're a little bit older now too than 15 when your goal was to be a producer slash owner. Were you feeling more dedicated towards on air when you finally got accepted into Nate? You know, when I got accepted, I still had the, the production in my head. It was doing it that actually I was like, you know what? I might be able to do this. But the goal was still to own a radio station. I just didn't understand when I was a kid what a program director was. Now, program to me is, is as close as I'll probably ever get to own in a radio station. But yeah, back then it was production when I entered Nate, and I still did a production practicum. But on my practicum, I got to do a little bit of everything, and I kind of fell in love with promotions. And I've taken the weirdest road into into programming I think ever in some ways no even I I enjoyed doing on the air and like you were there Nate too like they gave you those shows in the evenings and I love doing one for one of those too and and I'm still mad at Dave and Nate even though I totally respect him because he used to be so tough on me in production class that was the worst part if you showed any interest in being in production Dave Albright would flip the switch because he did the same thing to me because I was like oh this production thing's really cool and then my mark started to go down because he was like well I'm going to grade you harder than anybody else yeah. <laughs> oh you care so now I'm going to pick on exactly how that sound sounds <laughs> I remember the one assignment where you had to put it was like voice and music and that was it that was the whole thing and all you had to do was voice and music and I ended up producing the music myself playing it on the guitar using multiple effects on both the voice and the music like it was all everything was me and i remember getting like 20 percent less than one person who sang over a beer song <laughs> and i was like dave are you freaking kidding me he's like yeah you did all those things 
but you didn't do them all perfect. <laughs> and he was like, she did them all perfect. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, she only had two things. I had literal multiple voices, multiple instruments. <laughs> He's like, yeah, but you didn't nail it. But like, and I was so mad at him during school, but like after school, I realized like how awesome Dave Albright is as a human being. And he's been like a person that I always keep in touch with afterwards, but yeah, he drove me nuts. And honestly, that worked the reverse for me when it came to news, because the news teacher was like, first she was like, okay, like you gotta do this and this and this and this, and she'd be grilling me and she'd be grilling me. And by the end of the year, she was like, we're just gonna make sure you get through this. (laughs) And I was like, okay, that works for me. Like news just wasn't my deal. She's like, you think too much and you're not focused on the now. And I was like, yeah, that, that makes about sense. That sort of thought process worked uh, for me advantageously as well in the course at some point too. But Nate's a great course in the end. I think, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who've come through that and, and what they told us came true later on because my first job paid in radio came from, a, you know, one of the people I was in school with recommending me for it. So first, where did you do your uh, production practicum where you got to sort of get your hands dirty on things? Well, this is where I was trying to, every time I was trying to game the system because I thought I wasn't good enough. I knew everybody in town and Edmonton was going to take to try to get practicum in Edmonton or around Edmonton. I kind of always wanted to go go to the station I was wanted to end up at and never ever got to be there. Um, but I always knew people would go to those places from Nate, so they were used to getting Nate practicum. So I called Winnipeg and went to Power 97 in Winnipeg. And when I called Winnipeg, uh, Lachlan was like, was my program director. He's like, you're going to come out here for how long? For free? I'm like, yeah, I'll be there for four months. He didn't care at that point. Yeah, He was like, just get on a car and come out here. Like, he didn't care how good I was at that point. You're a he body. just liked the four, four months of free labor he got out of me. <laughs> so I went out to Power 97 in Winnipeg. Everybody there was awesome. The team at the time, I was just so lucky to work with. It was Wheeler and Hal in the morning. Then it was, uh, I don't know, when I first got there, I think it was, well, Fearless Fred was the evenings. Then Locker was on drive. Leak was out there too. It was just a crazy lineup of talented people that I got to just watch every day, which was just so cool to see. And Lachlan complains about himself as a PD, but he was great to work for although intense and like crazy at times. And so I was out there and the kind of deal Lachlan cut with me was I would help with whatever they gave me during the day. And he's like, you get free reign of the production booth at the evenings, four hours in the afternoon doing whatever we told you. And then the evenings you could just produce all the night. And Jay would give me jobs because Jay was the producer at the time. And now I think he's like on the air on power. Is that Jay Richardson? Um, Yeah. Yeah. He's afternoons on power now. Yeah. Awesome dude. And he was so nice to me and like, he was so cool to work with, but they give me whatever job they wanted. Like one day it was running to get t-shirts. The next day it was burning CDs. The next day it was whatever. And then every once in a while he'd throw me up something. Like one time he threw me a bag of potatoes. He says, we don't pay anything. Here's a bag of potatoes. I was like, oh, awesome. Go free bag of potatoes. It was awesome. It was. I was pumped to get the potatoes. That's hands down the weirdest swag I've ever heard anybody flex about. That was awesome. (laughs) Uh, But the problem was with my production practicum is I didn't like being in the booth. I didn't like being in the production booth. I was too too antsy to be out there and connecting with people. I mean, it even put us on the air one day, uh, me and the other intern, Scotty, who was actually not an intern at that time, but me and Scotty, the intern, was on air one day. I covered a couple of things. It's like, it's fun to get my feet wet in the on-air thing, but like, I fell in love with promotions. 
I never expected to. I didn't really love it during Nate, but I fell in love with promotions for a rock station. It was just so much fun. I got to, you know, pick up bands when they came into the town. You know, I got to help them do their, you know, sessions, they'd play shows and stuff. It was just a cool thing to get to be a part of. And so I fell in love with promotions. And so that's when promotions became the bug. And I was like, okay, maybe this is the route I go to get to program director. Um, because I knew some people had done it and it was becoming a bigger thing at that point. Because at first I thought I was like, well, it's going to be really tough if I don't do music. That's where I kind of hoped the route would be eventually the program director would be through through the promotions department. So by this time, you knew you wanted to be the program director was the end goal. That was the end goal right from the start. Even, even when I wanted on air gigs, I wanted them because I knew that would help me be a better coach. And a better and a better program director in the long run. Not to say I didn't enjoy it. Absolutely, I love it. I think there's anybody who says they don't like going on the air is a liar. I love doing it when I can. But the end goal is always that. So you drive all the way out to Winnipeg. You basically become yep. Lachlan Cross's personal assistant <laughs> slash slave. You get free run of the production booth, and four months later, you get told you can go. In the nicest, in far nicer terms than that, but yeah, he's like, yeah, man, you've been super awesome. He's like, if I had something for you, I'd do it for you. I'd give it to you, but I don't. <laughs> he goes, but I'll write you a reference letter. And I was like, okay, perfect. So on the last time, I'm like, Lachlan, I need that reference letter for you. He's like, oh yeah, a reference letter. And I'm like, he's like, here, uh, just write, hire this kid <laughs> on a piece of paper and I'll sign it. So Lachlan. <laughs> I know. And I did that, and he did. And that's what I used for my first three jobs after that, and it worked. <laughs> well, after he said it, he first he's like, oh, you might not want to show this to everybody. It might not get you anywhere with my name on it. I was like, come on. Man. If nothing else, it's just uh, a funny icebreaker. Yeah. Here's my bar napkin uh, letter of reference. <laughs> exactly, basically. So then I was, I had nothing. A friend of mine called me from Ontario, said, do you want to come out here and work in movies for a little bit? I thought, sure, why not? which I just found wrote really quickly was not my thing. I spent five months out in Toronto, had no money, didn't have a home for a while, squatted for a bit, did some sound on film, did some set design. I think I got a credit for costume department where actually I ended up just holding a boom mic the whole time, but some <laughs> sort of union trick thing. It's the only way I could work. I just didn't love it. And I got the heck out of that as quick as I could. Went back to Alberta, did the old reset, and started getting my resume out there. And this is January of 2005. But then a friend of mine from Nate, Sarah, calls me and she goes, we're, we're looking for street teamers. We got this promotion going on called the, the agent or something like that. But we all had to dress up like secret agents and walk through malls and stuff and people would try to find us in order to win prizes. So anyway, they needed a bunch of street teamers to do that. And so I was hired on temporarily with 96X and K-Rock was who I worked for. So I did some street teaming for K-Rock and I did some street teaming for 96X. And I liked 96X a lot. I thought it was a really cool station, especially when it launched. But yeah, we were doing the, you know, I forget what it was called. It's not the agent. But anyway, we were doing that promotion and we did that for a couple of months and they kept me on for a little while. But then I had uh, interviewed for this other position at Sonic because I knew Sonic was coming. And I was super pumped about Sonic because Alternative Rock has always been probably my closest wheelhouse when it comes to music, at least Alternative. And I wanted to step up and I wanted to, to, to take a, a leadership role because as I said, like leadership was always the kind of the goal. So I interviewed for, for a street team coordinator for them. That didn't come together right away. So then uh, April, 
I can't remember the exact timeline, but April 4th or 5th, the evening of April 4th, my apartment started on fire in downtown Edmonton. Arlington Apartments, oldest apartment building in, in Edmonton. Woke up two o'clock in the morning, rushed out of the rushed out of my apartment. Last person out of that building who wasn't hauled out by a crane because I sleep pretty soundly. So <laughs> house burns down, lose a bunch of my stuff. First thing I do is I call the radio station, go in, do an interview with the radio station, take the rest of the day off. Next day, we're sorting clothes for donation to my own fire. <laughs> I'm at the Salvation Army as a street teamer, donating clothes for the fire that I was in. Sonic launches, and we're all listening to it. Sorry, uh, bosses, but we were all listening to Sonic that day. Oh, dude, uh, my boss well, paid me to listen to Sonic that day when I was working at the Bear. He told me literally took me into a production office and said, your job today is to record the launch. I said, oh, yeah. tough deal. And it was a cool launch. It was great. And it was a cool sounding station. So that happened, and that was whatever that was, the Tuesday or Wednesday by that point. And uh, on the Friday, I remember going on a street team event to a movie, and we were waiting for something to start or something, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to phone the Sonic guys and tell them how great their launch is. And just say, if anything ever comes up, I'd love to come and work for you guys. Uh, and not because I had anything against anybody at 96X or K-Rock. They were incredible to me. They were absolutely incredible to me. They were incredible to me during the fire, during my fire. They helped me out a ton. They kept telling me to go home when I was like, no, I can work. Just because I wanted to focus on something other than the fact that my apartment had just burned down, even though I'd only lived in it for about a month and had no insurance. Um, and they were so nice. But I just it was the format that I was so attracted to. It was, it was working in alternative. So I phone up, get the guts to phone up uh, Sonic and say, hey, you know, like, congratulations on the launch. It sounds great. John, the guy who had interviewed me, goes, where the heck have you been? He goes, dude, I've been trying to get a hold of you for three days. <laughs> He's like, why haven't you been calling me back? And I was like, I'm sorry, John. My apartment burned down and my cell phone was in it. And he goes, well, that's a fair enough excuse. <laughs> And he tells me, he's like, well, we want you to come and work for us at Sonic. And, and, you know, I thought about it for a bit, but, you know, I talked to my boss, my first direct boss, who was at 96X, the three-team coordinator who had brought me on. And she was like, you got to go. And I'm like, yeah, I got to go, even though you guys have been so wicked to me. And they had, they really did. So Monday morning, I put in my notice. You know, because of everything at that time, it was like, okay, well, if you're putting in your notice now, you're done today. They, they didn't kick me out or nothing. They were really nice about it. They were just like, yeah, but we can't keep you on if you're going to go work for the competition. And I was like, okay. So I literally walked down the street on foot, the 10 blocks to Sonic and started that day at Sonic. Everybody always talks about walking across the street. You actually did it. I literally walked across the street. <laughs> yeah. It was only about four or five blocks. And started that day and started a street team coordinator. And I mean, any radio person who talks about a launch, it's the greatest thing you can be a part of. Like it really is. And being a part of Sonic, being such a small part of Sonic at the beginning of its massive explosion that it was, was such a cool thing to get to do because knowing now later on as i you know relaunch stations and such i'm like it was such a low pressure job that i got to do at sonic in such a cool way and such a cool thing like i've done some other launches and rebrands in the past that have been really fun and mean more to me personally because of how much i was involved with them but nothing will be as intense and crazy as sonic's launch just because of what it did and meant to that city I hated you guys when when y'all <laughs> launched because I now at that point was working on the Bear Street team and we had me, Ryan Meyer, and maybe like yeah. two or three other people like seasonal and we would show up 
to an event, a concert, something like at the Starlight, where both of us would be presenting. And we had yeah. us and you had a fucking army. It was an intern army. We had 54 people at one point. If we didn't get there first, we were just like lucky to put Banner up anywhere. Well, that was the point, man. Like, I mean, credit to uh, OK Radio Group at that time. They had a really, really cool vision and a really, really, really cool team. Al Ford is like, if you get a chance ever in your life to pick that man's brain, take every second of it you can because he's he really is a genius john sarah all of them were it was once again i was just re- and, and brent too it was just great to get to be in that room when i did and the rest of my life came together because of that time there my radio career really started there because that's when i, I, I got to put the, the the biggest work in and actually be in there like the power 97 stuff was super fun nate was fun uh you know 96x was fun too all that stuff but the real work was there and that's where it all sort of launched for me hey it's grant with pippin technical service if your station has an omnia 6 processor in your air chain the time to upgrade is now until the end of august telos alliance is offering thousands of dollars in trading credit when you upgrade your great sounding omnia 6 to the industry leading omnia 11 which unlocks the power of g-force and perfect e-clipper get major market dynamics loudness and save a couple grand on the purchase price music to your ears uh, speaking of music pippin technical is now an official yamaha canada musical instruments and professional audio and steinberg hardware and software dealer it's a mouthful but this is huge news for our commercial audio and house of worship clients and bring some great analog and digital mixers and usb interfaces into the fold for our broadcast clients too and the best part is we don't just sell it we're also a yamaha authorized service provider that means factory repairs in canada for yamaha gear because we fix stuff too. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Pippin Technical or drop us a line at pippintech.com. We build broadcast. So yeah, so did Sonic for two and a half, three years. Loved that place, loved everything about it. Got to work with really cool people. Uh, was really lucky to uh, to have a good relationship with Jason Manning, who was the music director at the time at Sonic. Once again, another just incredible human being that guy is. I owe so much to that guy too. And then because of the sale of, of Sonic to uh, Rogers, after the first year of Sonic, Rogers was launching another radio station. I was now a Rogers employee, so the idea was do what I want to come down to medicine hat and do another launch and be the promotions director so i get my first office the being in charge of all that stuff so i went down to medicine hat launched uh rock 1053 with with jason manning down there uh once again just an incredible human being to learn off of and and person to know and and work with and uh we did that for two and a half years i was down there i also did uh, evenings for part of it middays for a good portion of it produced the rock show on the on the weekends as well because you know when that's the thing about the small town ones you're, you're never doing just one role you're lucky if you're doing three and if you're in, more, in some places you're doing five to ten all for the pay of one though all for the pay of one mid-level tim hortons employee <laughs> so yeah. you got to do the the street team coordinator position for a good while at sonic and then you got moved up to the promotions coordinator what was the biggest difference for you going from being the guy who was executing these strategies to being the guy who was coming up with the strategies? The beautiful thing about Sonic and what I really dug about how they did things was it was very much a communal thought process. 
And I try to continue to do that through each market that I've ever been in. But the hardest part of that is trying to lead people through that in a way that is constructive and never uh, never trying to shoot people down or be mean to anybody. And I know that I've, I haven't 100% succeeded at never doing that. The great thing about Sonic is everybody there had a good understanding of the brand. And that was because of Al and because of Brent. Everybody understood the brand and what, what we were doing. So it was really good and easy to work within that. And that's one thing that I've, you know, you have to try to take with you when you go forward is you got to make sure everybody on the team is, is all rowing in the, in the same direction, right? We all know where we want to go with every pr- promotion that we're trying to do, with every event that we're trying to do. Because if you don't, it makes every one of those meetings very frustrating because everybody thinks their idea fits what you're trying to do and then they get frustrated when their ideas aren't heard or seen and they're not necessarily bad ideas. They're just ideas that don't fit the brand that you've got together or you know what you've put there. And that's, to me, is the core thing when, when taking on the promotions director role is I wanted to make sure that everybody that I worked with understood the brand and the visual representative brand, the on the street representation of the brand, because that's the promotions director's role, right? As we are the on the street representation of the brand, we're the, we're the out there representation of that brand. And then you've got to work with sales. So they understand that even though sometimes sales just wants to sell it. They understand it. They don't always care. <laughs> well, that's just it too, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's sometimes hard from our end to realize that the client sometimes doesn't care either and doesn't need to care. They sometimes just want to hit a demographic or a group of people, or they've heard that your brand is cool, so they just want to buy into it. They don't need to understand it. They just want to buy it. At some point, you're just trying to keep the lights on. Well, exactly. we got to do that. And, I mean, now more than ever, we're in a world of keeping the lights on. We talked about it. The, The biggest strength, other than the talent that they had at Sonic, was just literally this war of attrition when it came to the promotions game. You had mm-hmm. all these people. Now you're going to Medicine Hat, and anybody who has worked in a city that has a radio school and then worked in one that doesn't will tell you the quality of the street teamers tends to drop off because now you're just getting kids looking for a summer job as opposed to people who are looking to break into the industry. What was that step like for you becoming a promo coordinator? It comes into a bigger theme that when you're working small market radio, you are far more of a teacher. Not only teaching these people, you're not just telling them where to go and what to do, you're also teaching them why a lot. You're doing a lot of teaching why and how it relates to what you are, where you are as a radio station. You have to have that patience to understand. You know, even up here in Fort McMurray, you know, when staff comes to us, most of the time, this is their first or second radio station. This isn't their fourth or fifth. You know, it's a, you, you know you're teaching them at a very, very different level. So when in Medicine Hat, it was, I was surprisingly lucky. I ended up only having a problem with about one, maybe two people who I had as, as street teamers. Uh, I had two really consistent street teamers that were really great, and one of them ended up taking over for me after I left in 2010, I think, and they're still the promotions director of the radio station. That's awesome. So, yeah, so I was really lucky in that sense, but I have been in that situation in multiple markets, in small markets, 
And definitely you have to just understand how much you're teaching and, and, and over just how much you're just straight up directing. You can't tell people, go out there and, and make sure we own the place. That, that, that can't be an instruction in a small market like that because they go, what does that mean? Whereas you could say that in Edmonton and you could have an expectation that the street team would know what the heck to do. Now, this was also sort of your first opportunity to step in as a teacher. Did this really just solidify for you that you knew you were on the right path towards program director? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the most fulfilling thing that I that I get to do on any day is if I get to if I get to help somebody and I feel like I've actually helped. It can be the most painful as well when I try to help people and I don't feel like it's working or I oh, can't seem to get through somebody. That is the worst but feeling. It's the absolute worst. Absolutely. And especially when you're working with people that you know are super talented or at least have the raw talent to turn it into super talented and you're just like you have three little barriers stopping you from getting over this hurdle you're at a plateau you just have to do these things why won't you do these things <laughs> right you also can't take that stuff home with you every night or else you'll never sleep so what came after yeah. medicine hat so after medicine hat went back to edmonton and did the launch of the sound with harvard and that was is the promotions, promotions coordinator director. again yeah i was promotions director on that one once again i was super pumped getting to launch an alternative rock station triple a format but you know, to, to most people, it's an alternative rock station in my essentially adopted hometown. I mean, Camrose is not far from there. It was crazy. It was a different experience from Sonic. Clearly, that station did not do what Sonic did. It had a very small but mighty fan base that was very sad to see it go, but it only lasted seven months until it was flipped. That was the last time I got to be a part of a team. It's different for me after that. Because after that, I became a program director. So I was always the program director. Before that, I was in the mix of the team. Everybody on that sound team was 100% dedicated to what we were doing, loved the radio station, loved the music that we played, loved what we were doing, loved the brand, loved the logo. Like We were all on at 100%, which we were at Sonic too, and even at Rock. But we weren't seeing the, the love in the same way from, from the community. And I still think we would have. We had a long, long, long time to, to roll at it, but it wasn't as fresh as when Sonic came into Edmonton. So it was a very different experience. And as a promotions director, a very different experience, right? Going from the promotions department, you know, street team coordinator at Sonic, where you're just seeing everybody love what you do, know who you are. You can just see all of the returns on the work that you're putting in. And then having another radio station where you're launching it. And I think where the AAA brand suffered is it was harder to explain to people. You know, with Sonic, it was easy. With with AAA, it's tough. You know, we're, we're kind of an alternative rock station, but we play uh, Tom Petty and Pearl Jam. Yeah, but we also play July Talk. Yeah, but we also play, you know, uh, this a little bit lighter band. Oh, okay, well, I like all those bands but I've never heard of this type of radio station before. It was very confusing to people and it was hard to explain. Uh, but that team was just so awesome. Sarah Parker, incredible. Tamara Conrad, incredible. We had so much fun doing the sound. It was tough to see it not radiate to, to listenership uh, in the way that we had hoped it, it would in its short time. And then we flipped it to light seven months into that experiment. Light struggled too did slightly better than the sound um but light as a soft ac ac station uh, was a new thing for me at that point i was getting to the point where i wanted to get my my feet wet as a program director 
I put the, the feelers out that out there with that kind of intention. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a, I wanted to do programming with some way, shape, or form. If that meant an APD somewhere, whatever, I was up for it. Really, really incredibly lucky to be brought to uh, Grand Prairie to be the PD of Rock uh, 97.9 up there which was interesting to me at that point because it was the first time going back to a heritage radio station. I was three launches in. I loved the idea of launches. I loved the idea of always being the underdog and the expectations are different when you're the underdog. You know, you've got nothing but room to grow and places to go up, right? Even in my time at Sonic, Sonic never hit its highest point in my time that I was there, but skyrocketed faster than we ever expected. I know we did really well at Rock and Medicine Hat, but we never had ratings, so it always still felt like we were a new kid. And with the sound, of course, we never, you know, got anywhere huge and light either, right? So by that point, I'd done three launches in some way, shape, or form, getting to a bigger, bigger role each time, and then one rebrand and got that kind of experience. And then they just went, here's a heritage rock station with uh, an immense amount of time. I think we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the radio station while I was there. That's a lot of time for a stick to be around and to be doing the same thing. I mean, you'll see sticks that are out there for that long that you can find nine or ten different logos, names, and buttons in the the promo closet. Well, that's just that. Uh, And I mean, there was one name change in there. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it had been rock... For a, for a long time, and the general format had been there for a long time too. And it was the big dog in the in, in the market. You know, everybody was trying to catch up to to Rock and to Rogers in that market. It was a well-oiled machine when I stepped into it for the most part. Yeah, it was a different thing for me. Did um, it make you itchy? Like, did you just want to like knock a wall down somewhere in the building just to put your stamp on things? If I can give anybody advice ever about doing any of that type of going into a program director role or anything like that because I definitely didn't make the right choices going into this one is don't knock any walls down <laughs> in the first in the first three months don't don't knock any walls down you know don't flip the whole thing especially in your first PD role right if it's humming along pretty well let it keep humming along pretty well and learn I should have done it that way I shuffled and ruffled a little too much I think I could have had a different experience in my Grand Prairie time had I done it a little bit differently from the beginning. But I was I was fairly young at that time. Still, I think it was 31 at that point when I took over as PD. I was still, I was only six years into, into radio as a paid job. I felt really super lucky to be getting into a PD that job that quickly. But I also, I don't think I realized fully how green I was at a lot of it. I could have asked more questions. I had the people in my corner to ask the questions to, and I and I didn't. And and so my time at at, uh, at Grand Prairie ended up being a shorter uh, amount than I had wanted. Uh, but then about two years and a bit in, I ended up going over to uh, to Fort McMurray. And Fort McMurray was a place I never thought I would land. Before we get into Fort McMurray. A lot of people maybe would look at an uh, experience sort of the way you describe it, and you can hear it in your voice that Grand Prairie wasn't what you wanted it to be, wasn't what you thought it could be, and even looking back, isn't what it should have been. But yeah. I can also tell from the way that you talk, and I think that there are a lot of people that could stand to learn this lesson, is that sometimes when we have our failures, they can really become an asset moving forward. And it sounds like you feel the same way about that Grand Prairie experience. It took me a while to look at it just as lessons, but that's what I had to. That's what you've got to do. The only reason a lot of us are still in this business 
is because we don't give up on still being in this business. There's a lot of points in radio where you can give up or want to give up sometimes. I I just never could imagine myself doing anything else. I'm just not good at anything. <laughs> you can hate on it if you want, and, there's, and you'll run into people who quit along the way and hate on it, or you can accept it is what it is, accept the fact that you've decided to be in this, and this is what you've picked, and you do your best to do your best in it. You take your licks when you get them, take your lessons when they come, and you try to try to learn from things. And I know, like, I am not a person who learns his lesson right off at the bat when something happens. <laughs> I usually got to get a little angry for a little while. And then after a while, I reflect on it and go, you know, that was something important for me to learn. I know there, there's a lot of ego in youth when, the, when you start. I know there was a lot of ego for me when I started at, uh, in, in GP, and I'm not afraid to admit that. I thought I could go in there guns blazing. Whereas if I was to do any programming job again, to go into a new station again and a, a completely new building again, I mean, the first thing I do is ask a million questions. That's the first thing I do. To the staff, to my boss, I'd ask a million questions. I'd make a list. I'd stay up for three nights and make a list of questions I'm going to ask, and I'd ask a million questions. And I didn't do that the first time around. I did that more the second time around, you know, but that's where growth comes from. So, you know, we all decide whether one of those uh, tough experiences is going is to end our thing in this or if it's going to keep us going because we also know that if we take a break from this, the odds of us ever coming back is pretty small. You mentioned that Fort McMurray was not a place you expected to end up. Did you expect to be working for Harvard once again? I love working for Harvard. I love working for Harvard, and I... I've been lucky. I've been pretty lucky that every every place company-wise that I've had an experience with, I don't have any um, particular ill will towards them. My time at Chorus was really short. and It was just an internship, and I never had much interaction with, with the big bosses. My time at Newcap was short, but they never they never treated me wrong. My time at Rogers was, was great. And as I said, like any, anything that went south in that in the, in the, in the Grand Prairie part, you know, was a lot on, on me and I would have dealt with it a lot differently. And then coming into Harvard again, they've been nothing but fantastic to me. You know, it's had its tough times. I think anybody listening to this anytime soon is going to know it was just a few weeks ago that we've, we had a couple of layoffs, but that's the industry and that's the way that it is. But I, I still uh, highly respect everybody at the top of this company was very happy to come back to them. When I left after light, I, I would have come back to them in a minute. Had they had the job for me, I wouldn't have never, I would never have left. They're a nice medium sized company that that's got enough radio stations to, I mean, you've worked there for a long time too. It's got enough radio stations to give you places to go, but it doesn't have 8 million radio stations where you literally have a number and you know what that is. And you have to enter that number in to look at your own information. I don't know. I I, I was ready to come back to Harvard and I was happy that they brought, uh, happy that they took me back. Fort McMurray really um, is the kind of place where you, you've said it, you're getting people at their first, their second station. Yeah. So you've really been able to get your hands on and, and mold some, some people. Is this where you've really started to perfect being teacher Andrew, Mr. Wilcox? Well, I think I would rather say I perfected learning Andrew. I wish I could say either I perfected either of those, but I learned how to listen better, which made me a better coach and has made me a better coach. I found my role. I really did. And I realized more than ever that this is what, this is what I do. I never needed to be on the air to do it. I never needed to be a great producer to do it. All you have to do to be a great manager is be a really really good listener and a thoughtful person and 
a direct and honest person, you know, and, and have knowledge of what you're doing. Definitely, if I was able to map out how I got here again, I would do it differently, but it got me where I wanted to be. I never thought it would be in Fort Mac, but I also found out Fort Mac's pretty awesome. And you've gone through some hardships uh, in your time in Fort Mac. Fort Mac has not <laughs> had the easiest stretch of luck. I'm not trying to pin it on you specifically. I'm just saying there's some coincidences to be considered here. Well, uh, I will say this. I worked at three record stores that no longer exist. I worked at two video stores that no longer exist. And I came up here in 2013 and uh, in that time, there has been a flood, a fire, a downturn, maybe a curse. Let's not forget about the apartment, Andy. And my apartment burnt down as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I wouldn't be as arrogant to think I would have that ability to actually affect that. <laughs> but uh, it has been a road. Yeah, definitely. It came up here in 2013, the absolute end of 2013, which kind of turned into the end of the bubble in Fort McMurray. And I got a very small, short taste of that craziness that people talk about, where it's like, I think I paid $1,100 for a room in a basement, and there was, it was a two-bedroom basement suite that was technically an illegal suite that had two other people in it. They had a very small version of a stove, but it didn't have much to it. And I paid a ridiculous amount for that. And I was like, oh my God, if this is going to be my next couple of years, I don't know if I can do this. But then it just consecutively changed and became more and more and more of a family town. And I, I don't know what it is, man. Like, I've always had the underdog field to my life. And I've come and I found the underdog town that everybody has a negative view on, that everybody thinks is full of people with way too much money and too many trucks, which actually turns out to be a lot of families, a lot of people from all over the world, an incredibly diverse and interesting group. And one thing that I love about this town, and even the radio people that are in this, it takes a certain type of person to move their entire life halfway across a country or even halfway across a province to a place like Fort McMurray, four hours away from almost anywhere in the middle of cold and whatever else to do something they love. They clearly love it that much. So we have people come up here to become executive directors and theater directors and all these types of things. So you end up with these super, super passionate people in everything up here. And it's such a crazy way that that sort of the distance, you'd think the distance would mean that nobody would come up here, but the distance actually weeds out the people who are meh about doing something and brings up the young and the passionate. And that's what I get for radio kids. I get young and passionate who might be a little rough around the edges and I like it. I mean, I think that's a win in that sense. So we had the downturn in 2014. We had the fire in 2016. Uh, we've had the flood this year. And of course, all, all of that with COVID as well in the last little bit. But, you know, the nice thing about having a, a, a team of, of passionate people who are willing to go the extra mile is you can count on them to get it done. And the biggest lesson I took away from the fire is sometimes you got to know when you are the person that goes and gets the coffee. And that was the biggest job that I did during that fire. My news people worked their butts off. My announcers worked their butts off. I just made sure all the time I was making sure I was checking in with them, making sure they were okay. And if they needed a coffee, I got them a coffee. If they needed a chocolate bar, I got them a chocolate bar. If they needed 10 minutes alone, I made sure they could have 10 minutes alone. That was the most vital thing I did during that time. I was going to ask the question, how do you 
And you've always wanted to, to do this. You've always wanted to be a program director. <laughs> you've loved teaching people and working with people to help them become the best that they can be in this industry. But there's nothing in the story that we've been telling for the last 45 minutes that prepares you to lead a staff through a generational wildfire or a pandemic or a flood, the likes of which this town has never seen before. How do you lead your staff through that? Like I said, man, you be there. You connect with them. You get out of their way. (laughs) Get out of their way. If you've done your job, if you've hired the right people and hiring the right people is job number one more than anything else, If you've hired the right people, job number one, if you've given them the skills that they need, which is job number two, then you get out of the way in these situations. You make sure they have what they need, you make sure they get what they need when they need it, and then you get a heck out of the way. Because at that point, having little extra speeches about brand or uh, break links or any of those types, that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all, doesn't matter. What matters is we're serving our community, and we and I know I got the people to do that when it needs to get done. So that's what you do. You get out of the way and you get them coffee. So how do we get from here, 2020, running stations for Harvard and Fort McMurray, how do we get from here to you owning one of these radio stations? That's the only step that's left. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think that's, that's like your thoughts on this. What do you think the radio industry is going to look like in 10 years? It won't be anybody like me or you owning it, that's for sure. You don't think so? So here's the thing. I've been been pondering the bubble theory for for years now because everybody always talked about, you know, uh, radio in North America, Canada, and the U.S. used to be owned by independent owners, single owners. Maybe they'd own a small cluster of stations and things ran a certain way. And then the big corporations came in and they started buying things up. And some people will say that that was great because now you had all the resources of a mega company behind your radio station. And other people will say that some of these companies are, they they don't care. They're run by people who are accountants who, who only care about the bottom line and they don't understand what makes radio work and that it's killing the industry and i think both sides are actually right because i think that there are some companies that that put the effort and the time in and i think that there are others that are literally just shell corporations for accounting firms and investment groups i will say that it's not about the size because i know that there's super passionate people in all sizes of radio companies but there's some companies that are milking it and some companies that aren't hundred percent. So I know that there are people who think because you're seeing, especially down in the States, the States is just uh, this travesty with, with all these mega companies, these mega corporations uh, almost falling apart. They're going bankrupt because radio, they, they stripped radio down of what it could be so that it became more, more profitable. Uh, But then Mm -hmm. people lost interest in it because they took away everything that made it profitable. And now it's not profitable. And you're seeing some stations, start to get sold off back to independent owners. I don't know that I see that happening here in Canada, though. One one thing for me is I think a, a big portion of it has to do with regulation. A big portion of it has to do with regulation. It depends how the regulations evolve, and I don't know what the answers are. I'm not the guy to ask that question to. I know there's people to talk to that are far better at answering those than me. But I think it all comes down to regulation, because if there's anything I've learned from the small towns is there's a demand for small market radio stations, a connection to small market radio stations. And that's the saddest thing that I've seen lost through a lot of companies recently is that they've lost those small market connections. Now, if, if things could get shuffled in a way 
that the person who is in that building owns and runs that radio station and a bunch of it of your production and your engineering comes from services that you pay into and you end up in charge of the radio station itself and its music, I could see it going that way. I could also see it going to a point where some municipalities start to pick up radio stations. You know, when it comes to certain markets, you know, with the way listeners are, you only need a certain number of formats in each market, right? I think Fort McMurray's got the four formats it needs. It doesn't need any other one. Wow five if you count the Christian station. Sure. Um, but it's got the it's got the mainstream formats it needs. It doesn't need any other it doesn't need any stations. It's not going to expand any more stations, not even if the population grows intensely. We shouldn't hand out any more licenses in my mind for that in, in that sense. But the question of who's going to own those and who's going to get make profit off of them, I don't know. I don't I don't know. I don't think I got the answer. But I I always uh, wonder if some, if sometimes some towns are going to take control of their own radio stations in order to, to better serve their communities, and they're going to put people in charge of those. And I think it would be great to see that. I don't um, see radio going anywhere. I don't see it going back to the, the halcyon days of yore with, with each station having independent ownership. I don't know about the municipalities only because I already know the outcry against the CBC from people who think that it's left-leaning and biased and untrustworthy and it would defund the I CBC. Know. You see the, the hashtag anytime you go on social media. So now if you start letting the government own more stations, more formats, I think I think that's just a headache that most governments would like to avoid. I think, though, that radio is not in the dire trouble. This is a, pardon the phrase, unprecedented time right now. With everybody, every radio station, every company is seeing their bottom line affected because we're an advertising industry. And it's all these other businesses that can't afford to buy advertising that has put a lot of radio stations on thin books, so to speak. But I think that as our economy across this country comes back, you're going to see more people wanting to get more into the advertising than ever before. They need to get the word out. We are still here. We are open. It's the sign on the front of the building in clerks. I assure you, we are open and radio is going to be the place to do that more so than a lot of other places. I think as long as there are passionate people, and I think the existence of this podcast as more than just a hobby for myself shows that we have all these passionate people that love to listen to this show or come on this show. As long as there are people that give a shit about radio working everywhere from street teams to program directors to general managers across the country, I, I think it'll be fine. But I'm with you in that I don't know who's going to be making the money in the end. It, it comes down to regulation. Because my, the scary thing is if they say you can have four FM licenses in a market, who knows what could happen to this market? Who knows what could happen to Grand Prairie? Who knows what could happen to Lethbridge? Who knows what could happen to Red Deer? Right? Like those types of things. And then, you know, then big big corporations can buy them up, piecemeal the, the parts that they need to, and, and streamline them incredibly thin. And as you said, Right now, people in their local businesses are looking for ways to get those shouts out. But the problem is, is right now, with these communities in COVID and stuff like that, they don't have that local person talking to them locally about how what the COVID numbers are like. They don't have a, what the COVID numbers are like in Athabasca. They don't have somebody in that building doing what they need to do. And that's where I get, that's where I get sad. That's where I get worried is that this is the time where we should have had people in all of those stations across all of these provinces talking about their local market and what's happening there. And they don't have that in some 
of them. We're lucky enough to have it here, and we're lucky to have a, a good staff, thanks to Harvard, sticking with us and, and, and trusting in us, and, and for us being a certain size. But like that's that's where I get worried is is that we, if we don't do our absolute best for the community when the community needs us most, the community's not going to be there for us when we need it the most. Maybe that's the mix uh, between what you were talking about with cities, municipalities, maybe getting involved in ownership to my thought of governments should probably stay out of you know the press other than you know having our national broadcaster maybe maybe the middle ground is some sort of subsidy that a, a city or a province can yeah. offer in towns of a certain population or less to these companies whether it be harvard rogers chorus stingray now uh, you know these some of these places that have pulled back on small market live broadcasts and replaced it with voice tracking or simulcasting maybe there's a subsidy there that makes it worth it to these companies to go okay we are gonna hire this guy that girl right out of school give them a morning show let them get into this community and and we'll make a little bit of a kickback we we won't end up paying their salary whatever it is you know yeah find a way to balance it out in that sense I mean, and then in and that way too, you might have somebody in those communities that steps up and goes, "I want to buy this and make it ours." And I've seen that happen with Christian stations. The RV place bought the Christian station in Grand Prairie, really, because they're passionate Christians. Yeah, fair I don't enough. Know if they still own it, but they did. I don't know why that can't happen with some of the other. I mean, because the startup costs are so much, right? Yeah, I think that there's got to be, and we've got to look at different things. Because I mean, radio is going to be partially different when we come out of this COVID thing. Not just on a financial standpoint, but from a from a work standpoint, when we've been having everybody work from home, producers, writers, and people like that, who some of them may want to stay home. Some of them may go, I got kids and this was actually cheaper for me to be home and working from home and I'm still as productive as I was in the office. We don't know what the landscape's going to look like. You know, a lot of producers like to produce from their home. Oh, man, the Harvard Regina office building is unnecessarily large. I'll tell you that right now. That's what we learned over the last few months because you've got uh, the news department has their own section of a hallway and we've got three studios plus a fourth front-facing, like street-facing studio, three production studios, even though there's only two producers you know yeah. you've got the rack room and the promotions offices and 17 janitorial closets and then a huge open room with all the music directors and pds and salespeople and all that stuff all at cubicles and open concept and and then covid hits and it's you know me and the two other music directors and the one writer who said that his home internet just wasn't good enough even though like bud you're using microsoft (laughs) office how hard did you need to use the internet yeah we could put up like five or six walls pare this place down and still be running pretty tight ship (laughs) yeah well we're really lucky in fort mac because we have a we had a redo a couple of years ago and it, it we kept her pretty pretty slim but even now we it feels pretty empty in there but there's a lot of those radio buildings where it's almost eerie to walk around in them because you're like oh it used to be the news department that held five people yeah my office in grand prairie was we used to be the creative department which held three desks and right. had three staff and then we didn't have a creative person anymore yeah yeah, so there's a lot of those discussions too happening in in radio. I'm sure when it looks at when it looks at overhead, you know, when people do YouTube channels from their bedrooms and internet radio stations from a laptop, podcast yeah. studios that are basically just your cell phone now, a cell phone and a pair of Apple iPod earphones. There you go. <laughs> right. It's going to be interesting, right. and that's almost kind of perversely something I'm looking forward to seeing. As long as I can keep maintaining uh, gainful employment. 
I welcome yep. whatever radio is going to become because it's going to be a hell of a ride. Exactly. I'm riding this wave until it kicks me off. Well, my friend, you know I had a lot of love for college Andy, and I got a hell of a lot of respect for program director thanks, Andrew, dude. and I want to say thanks for coming on, man. Oh, thanks for the invite, man. It was great chatting with you. This has been the Off Mic Podcast, brought to you by Pippin Technical. Tune in next week for more great stories from more great broadcasters. Follow the show on social media. Search Off Mic Podcast on Facebook or on Twitter and tell us who you want to hear on the show. I'm Drew Dalby. Thanks for listening.